There are times when talking isn't very satisfying. And sometimes we feel like peppermint patty, that we want to just get up and walk away. Sometimes we wives can feel a great deal like a negative example that I read about in the Chicago Tribune when we lived back there. And a little um, article by Nancy Stahl in a column called Jelly Side Down. And this is what she writes. Every once in a while, I become a bit broody that my role as an exotic enchantress has become something of a bit part. Not that I expect my husband's nostril to flare whenever the hem of my skirt brushes his knee. I don't even expect him to quiver with erotic delight when I scratch the place on his back where he can never reach. But I have the uncomfortable feeling every morning that if I greeted him at the door, stark raving naked, he would tell me that I have lipstick on my teeth. What I object to most is that, unless one counts the sparkling one-sided conversations I carry on with the dog, the cryptic remarks I address to the washing machine, and an occasional chat with dial a prayer, I spend ten hours of every day virtually incommunicado. By evening, I am sobbingly eager to be recognized for the gay, witty nymph I really am, and to perhaps engage in a spot of repartee. How was your day? I began last night, addressing my opening gambit to the back of the sports page. Mmm. Did you have a good lunch? Mmm. I'm having the roof re-shingle with gold-plated clamshells, I remarked casually. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the TV repairman is madly in love with me. We're running off together next Wednesday morning, right after I get back from Weight Watchers. Mm. Talk to me, I finally shrieked. He stared at me as if I had just demanded to shave his legs. <laughs> I've been talking to you. You haven't been talking. You've been mmming. You haven't heard a word I said, I complained. I've heard everything you've said, he argued. By the way, you have lipstick on your teeth. <laughs> Dwight Small says in his book, Designed for Christian Marriage, how suddenly holy wedlock can become unholy deadlock. And this is true. Our marriages can be either a dual or a duet, sometimes both, depending on when you look in. And as Jack mentioned last night, we don't come here with any idea of being experts in this field. We're learners. We've come to these seminars sometimes hurting deeply within ourselves. And yet God has taught us the marvelous thing. And he has the answer. Of that we're sure. We don't always listen to his answers, but he has the answers. But you can't expect the wages of happiness without working for them, without earning for earning them. Someone has said you can't know anyone unless you communicate with them. You can't love anything you don't know. Therefore, the depth of love existing between a husband and a wife largely depends on the amount and depth of their communication. Communication is vitally important. It's probably the most vital ingredient in the success of our marriages. Because communication is to love what blood is to the body. Love really can't exist without depth in communication. Now, a very simple definition of communication is that communication is a process, either verbal or nonverbal, of sharing information with another person in such a way that the other person understands what you are saying. Now, that's the key ingredient, the understanding of what you're saying. And you know, this is just plain old hard work. 
we, um, we need to aim for the goal of saying what we mean and meaning what we say. But we're such complicated people that we rarely reach that goal. As I said last night, we just kind of wiggle around. We go around Robinswood Barn to get to the point. We need to work to stop doing this, but we'll never actually reach the, the goal of doing this all the time. You see, friends, we need to always be thinking about asking questions such as, what do you mean? What are you really saying? This is how I'm taking what you're saying. So that instead of being on two different wavelengths, we will be constantly bringing those wavelengths together. Now, friends, our, our whole goal in this is not to think alike. It's much more important to think together than to think alike. And as we mentioned last night, uh, men and women in different kinds of personalities simply do not think alike, and that's okay. But we need to learn to think together. In other words, to bring these wavelengths together constantly so that we're understanding one another. Now, there are six messages involved in communication. And this gets very complicated at times. The six messages are what you mean to say, what you actually say, what the other person hears, what the other person thinks he hears, what the other person says about what you said, and what you think the other person said about what you said. And you can see that that gets a little complicated, doesn't it? So let me illustrate what I mean. Do you remember the illustration that I used last night about looking at the moon? All right, what did I mean to say? Well, I meant to say that moon makes me feel romantic. That isn't what I said. I said, isn't that a beautiful moon? So what I meant to say is that I'm feeling romantic. What I actually said is, isn't that a beautiful moon? Now what the other person hears might be, that moon is bright. And so what the other person thinks he might be hearing is, oh, it's a nice night to take a walk with that bright moon. So... The other person, what the other person says about what you said might be, oh yes, that's bright enough to shoot a golf ball by. And what I think the other person said about what I said might be, I don't feel romantic. And you see how we have completely missed each other's wavelengths. Our thinking together through these six messages. Now we're in the constant process always of coding and decoding messages. We almost can't avoid this, although it's something we want to work on. For instance, Jack may come in and ask a very simple question such as, when is dinner? Now I could interpret his question of when is dinner as, I'm hungry, can you hurry up supper so that we can eat right away? Now, isn't that what a lot of you wives would think that your husband meant by that question? But you see, over the years, I realized that Jack is a jogger. So what he's really asking is, do I have time to run before dinner? Now, he's learning to say, do I have time to run before dinner, <laughs> which is not a coded message, you see. But unless I'm understanding him rightly, I can hurry up dinner when he actually wants dinner delayed. And again, we have missed each other's wavelengths. 
You could get irritated about that, and I could get irritated about it too. But we're constantly doing this, aren't we? And we constantly need to, to be asking, well, what are you really saying? What do you want? Do you want me to hurry dinner, or do you want me to wait? And this uh, happened, we were over in London with a couple, and we had just been talking about this. And we had an evening with this dear couple, and as we were driving down the street, Jeannie said, it's five o'clock. Well, we all had watches. We knew it was five o'clock. And we all started laughing. We said, okay, Jeannie, what are you really saying? Well, she was really saying that do we have time to stop and see if the kids are all right before we go on to our next project. Didn't say that. And so often, I suppose we wives are, are more prone to do this, maybe, than you husbands. But we, we drop these little gems and hope that you will pick up our signals. And if you don't pick up our signals, then we can get hurt. It's unfair. It's immature. But it's, it's us. <laughs> Sorry about that. Too often husbands and wives concentrate on the talking aspect of communication because they're overly concerned about getting their ideas across. In doing this, they fail to really listen to the other person. Someone has said, listening intently with one's mouth completely and firmly shut is a basic communication skill needed in all marriages. But you know, we um, we don't often do this. The story is told of a little boy who came into his mother one day and he said, um, Mommy, where did I come from? And she thought, uh-oh, here we go. She'd been told, and rightly, that when your children are old enough to ask questions, they're old enough to get the right answers. And uh, so she thought, oh, well, okay, here we go. And so she explained the whole complicated process of reproduction. And this um, little boy kept getting this frown deeper and deeper on his face. And pretty soon, when she finished the whole thing, he said, no, no, Mommy. I mean, where did I come from? Like, Jimmy came from Chicago. Well, she hadn't asked enough questions to find out what he was really asking. And we need to listen to understand. Paul Tournier said, how beautiful, how grand and liberating this experience is when people learn to help each other. It is impossible to overemphasize the immense need humans have to be really listened to. Listen to all the conversations of our world between nations as well as those between couples. They are for the most part dialogues of the deaf. And how often you've been with a couple or other people, doesn't have to be couple. When you, when one person has been talking along one track, and you know the other person interrupts and starts in a totally different idea, and then this one interrupts and goes back to what they were talking about, and this one does the same thing, and we've all been guilty of that, and we catch ourselves not really listening. You know, one of the most valuable helps to me personally along this line has been letting the Spirit of God take the Word of God and be that sword in my heart at times like this. One of the greatest helps in my whole life as far as uh, helping my Christian life to get out of the theoretical and put it into the practical. Has this been this matter of hiding God's word away in my heart? Someone once said that I used to memorize scripture, but now I learn it by heart. Big difference, huh? We can put it up here, and there's a long ways between putting it in our mind and actually letting God grip our hearts with it 
But when we let him grip our hearts with it, watch out. In fact, I've often said, don't memorize scripture unless you want God to change your life, because he will. And I can remember very vividly the time that I memorized Proverbs 18, verse 2 in the uh, Revised. And it says this, A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. Pull that one out of your back. (laughs) And I don't know how often I have been sitting there listening to somebody, or seemingly listening to somebody, whether it's Jack or Lynn. Lots of times our children, of course, were very prone to do this, or friends. And I'm kind of mentally sitting on the edge of my chair, just waiting for that person to finish so that I can get my two cents worth in. I'm sure you've never done that, but I do that frequently. And as I'm sitting there mentally on the edge of my chair, just waiting for this person, sometimes not waiting too patiently, the Holy Spirit takes that dagger of the sword of the Word of God and pokes and says to me, Carol, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. And I have to say, ouch. Help, Lord. Help me to listen with understanding. I don't want to be a fool. Help me not to just be waiting to express an opinion but to really listen to understand. And this has probably been the greatest help for me personally. Because the Holy Spirit is faithful, isn't he? And as we have and maintain this vital relationship upward with God and letting him really be the architect of our marriage, the resident architect of our marriage, He's going to show us some tremendous things along this line in a very practical way. It is in listening that love matures. But some of us may need to examine ourselves a little bit if we're not being listened to. Um, You may need to just ask God to search your heart, to try your thoughts, Psalm 138, the last uh, last verses of that beautiful chapter. Search me, O God, and know my thoughts, and try me. And see if there's any wicked way in me, and lead me into the way everlasting. And ask God just to search your hearts to see if there's a reason you're not being listened to. For instance, let me read you this. The defiant woman, this is from a little book called One Plus One Equals One. A defiant woman said to me once, I'd just like to see you talk to my husband. I'd just like to see it. There's no way it can be done. She went on to say that when he was at home, he either had his nose in the newspaper, he was glued to the television, or he was asleep. I might just as well not even be there. She said that occasionally, when she just had to, she would grab him by the shoulders, look him straight in the face, and say, Now you are going to listen to me. She sighed and then said, when I get all through, do you know what he says? All I get out of him is a little grunt. That's all, just a grunt. Well, she goes on to say, I listened to that woman. For almost 45 minutes straight I listened, and I had a great feeling of sympathy for that husband. He knew very well what he was doing. The newspaper, the television, the quick nap, what wonderful escape mechanisms they were. She had the most unpleasant combination of shrill nasal tones, hypercritical attitude, and nonstop pace I have ever encountered. The thought of being subjected to that the first thing each morning and the last thing each night would chill even an implacable scientific social worker. One might even look upon deafness with a certain amount of interest. (laughs) This husband had done the next best thing. He had perfected what is known as occupational deafness. So perhaps one of the things that we all need to do is just ask God, 
for a really loving attitude, huh? And a real a change of our own hearts that we might be the kind of person that is worth listening to. You know, Proverbs tells us that the mouth of the righteous is like a well of life. Good prayer for us all to pray, isn't it? That our mouths will be like a well of life. And that's another thing that God can give us. We have a tremendous, creative, fabulous God. And he can constantly be giving us, in our relationship with him, Things that are well worth sharing as well as is changing our lives. So we need to really look at this. I used to talk to her, a silent husband once explained, you know, about my job and all that. I would start to explain a problem I might have, but she would always cut me off. That reminds me, she would interrupt and be off in some tangent. All that my talking did was to give her a springboard for some topic of her own. She wasn't interested in what I wanted to say. You couldn't blame him, yet she didn't mean any harm. It was just that she was so undisciplined that her mind would be triggered off by any word association, and her tongue simply trailed along. Now, what happens sometimes in in this kind of situation is that we start to ridicule one another. And one author that I read said this, ridicule not only hurts, it also impoverishes. Marriage is a wonderful opportunity to bring out new ideas in a free atmosphere of sympathy and understanding. The vast majority of these brainstorms will be found to be valueless when sifted thoroughly, but now and again one idea will come up which will be priceless. It pays to let thought process proceed completely uninhibited. Even the wildest ideas are worthy of study. Ridicule can stop the flow of thoughts and ideas. Understanding can quicken it. So marriage should be a place where you're free to express any idea, even nutty ones. And again, let me say this is one of the things that's high on my priority list of appreciation about Jeff Mayhoff. Because I'm kind of a nut, to tell you the truth. And um, and I know that I come up with pretty screwball things sometimes. And, uh, and I can act kind of silly. But I just so appreciate the freedom that Jack has given me to be in me. And he's never ridiculed me. He's never said, oh, that's the stupidest idea thing you've ever come up with. Sometimes he kind of smiles. (laughs) But he gives me the freedom to be me. Now let me give you a a little listening device that uh, may help in this matter of really understanding one another. To help a couple keep conversation on an even keel and to make sure that each person hears everything the other is saying, one counselor asks that the speaker not be interrupted. Let me write that in red. You have the habit of interrupting before the other person is really finished. It's a habit that you ought to talk about and in some way remind each other when you do it. Some people are absolutely unconscious that they're interrupting. And so sometimes you need help from the other person. Then the listener is asked to restate the speaker's main point. For instance, if I heard you correctly, you said that you needed more privacy and that I should leave you alone more. And the other person has a chance to say, no, you didn't hear me correctly. What I said was, with all that I have to do, it's hard to find time for privacy and my own interests. I'm asking you to help think of ways that might give me more time. It has nothing to do with you. 
I see how this couple had missed each other. But to get it out and restate what you think the other person has said is a valuable listening tool that we ought to be working on constantly. We so often misinterpret or misunderstand what is said that this little gimmick is a good tool to remember when conversation starts to get heated. This is especially good in areas of conflict, when you think you've got a conflict. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Now let me stop right here. And I want you to take two minutes, just as couples, we singles here can just think through on this. And ask yourself very briefly, what do you feel is our major area of communication difficulty? Don't start talking about it. But do you feel it's money matters that we have a hard time and we get upset about as we talk about? Do you feel it's physical, sex problems? Do you feel it's in-laws? Do you feel it's the children's discipline? Do you feel it's just personal deep feelings that you have a hard time expressing? What one area do you feel you have the most difficulty really talking about? Now, you won't obviously have time to talk about it, but just think through on what you feel, each of you, could be that one major area of difficulty. Okay, you have two minutes. Um, just shared with one another, probably the things that maybe on the sheet that we gave you would be a section that you could take first. We had one couple that had been married a number of years and um, used this sheet as a kickoff for topics that they discussed on their dates. I hope you still have dates. And um, just they took the lighter kind of ones, not the real heavy ones, but um, they found it an extremely valuable tool to really start communicating on a deeper level. Now, I'd like to share with you some communication problems, blocks that we have, sometimes unconsciously, to real communication. Probably one of the most common problems is that one or both simply refuse to talk about anything that's very important, or they refuse to be honest. The phrase, nothing is wrong, to be stricken from every married couple's vocabulary. And I'm guilty of this. There could be something bothering me. Sometimes it would, that Jack has done. Sometimes it doesn't have anything to do with him. And he can come in the door, and of course he can read me like a book. I'm very transparent to him. And uh, so he can kind of feel that there's something wrong, and then he walks in the door. And he'll say, honey, is there anything you matter? No. You sure? Yes. Come on, what's wrong? Nothing. You know, and this can go on for quite some time. Now, um, sometimes it's deliberate on my part. Sometimes I'm using it as a tool to uh, hurt him. Because maybe he has done something. Which, again, is wrong. But sometimes it really doesn't have anything to do with him. It's been something else. But you see, that's not fair. What I need to say is, yeah, there is something wrong. Or maybe there really isn't anything wrong, or I don't even know what's wrong. I just feel like being quiet. Just don't pay any attention to my mood. But I need a word of explanation to take him off the hook. If it's not anything to do with him. So think about that. That phrase, nothing is wrong, needs to be stricken from your vocabulary in order to get down to the depth and level of communication that we really want. Now, friends, there is a high price to pay for total communication in a relationship. But we feel definitely it's worth the cost because the rewards are so great. The price is paid in two things. In time, the television set off, getting up a little early in the morning, so we can have a little longer breakfast together maybe, a little lack of sleep sometimes when we've got something 
really on our hearts that needs to be discussed then. And the top price is paid in vulnerability. We really open ourselves up to the other person at a risk sometimes. But that risk has got to be taken. And of course, we who love Christ, see, we can leave these things in his hand, can't we? We're vulnerable, yes, but he's in control. One wise man said that lots of times a couple comes across a topic that's uh, full of conflict the first year they're married. married. And so they realize that every time this topic is brought up, there's tension and friction in the air. And they get very upset and mad about it, and so they stop talking about it. The next year, they discover another topic that's full of frustration. And the third year, another. And at year five, you're not talking. Problems have to be brought out in the open. They have to be brought out in the open and talked about. In marriage, silence is dangerous because it shouts that something is wrong. Love can survive large problems better in the open than small ones burning and smoldering within. Silence shows a lack of love. It implies the other is not worth sharing with, that we don't care what the other thinks. Now let's look at a couple we're going to call Sue and Elmer and see if we can identify with some of the methods with withdrawing that are conscious or unconscious with a lot of us. Sue says, Honey, I'd like to talk to you about something that's been bothering me lately. And Elmer counters with, Not now, Sue. There's a football game on TV I've been wanting to watch. Let's talk about it later. But somehow after dinner, he has business that has to be taken care of, or an important telephone call, and after that, he's just too tired. Now, how many times has that gone on in your family? Uh-huh. I see some of you smiling at me. Unconsciously, what Elmer's doing here is he's being too busy to talk. So, two weeks later, Elmer comes in discouraged and upset. He's been wrestling with a personnel problem, and he wants to talk it out with Sue. Just as he gets well into the incident, Sue interrupts with, Honey, did you remember to pay that water bill yesterday? This effectively tells him that she really isn't that interested in his work or his problem. And later, she complains that he never discusses his work with her. She has used the device of changing the subject and not really dealing with the issue at hand. This is more frequent than we like to think it is. And our minds are wise, we wise, sometimes our minds absorb with the kids, and we're only half listening. And so we interrupt with a problem that the children might be having at school, and we really cut them off without even realizing it. So Elmer carries his problem alone. But the personnel problem doesn't dissolve, and he becomes very irritable. So one night he tries again to reach Sue, and he says, Honey, you really don't seem very interested in my problems at work. And he's trying to be honest. He's trying to express his feelings, which is good. She looks stricken, and then angry. And then she says, Oh, you don't think so? Well, you don't listen to me either. How many times have I tried to tell you something and you just kept reading your old paper? Don't talk to me about not listening. Oh, our old human nature, huh? We do this. We all do this. We strike back. But it is an effective block in good communication. What it is, is plain old effectiveness.
So a week later, Sue says to Elmer, well, let me backtrack here. What could Sue have said? See, if we're really being walking in the spirit, as Jack was talking about last night, if we're really letting the Lord dwell in us, she needs to be vulnerable at this point and say, you're right, I'm sorry. What can I do about it? How can I help you? Oh, if we'd only learn to do that, both of us, we'd be way ahead. So a week later, Sue says to Emma, you know, honey, you've only spent 15 minutes with the kids this week, and even less with me. I really feel that you need to give us more time. And she's expressing her feeling in the need. And Alma comes back with, oh, you're right. I'm the world's worst father and husband. I don't know how you put up with me. I really am a failure. And on and on he goes. You ever done that? You know what you're doing? It's another block, whether you've realized it or not. Because what you're practicing is what someone has said is super guilt. Dr. Mallory of the Atlantic Christian Counselor Center has written a little book called The Kink and I. And he has some various sweet thoughts along this line. And he has suggested that those who feel or act this guilty have no intention of changing. Because if they intended to change, they wouldn't need to feel so guilty. Now, a variation of this can be the giving in on everything. He calls it peace at any price. Now, sometimes husbands have abdicated their role as leaders. And they give in to their wives about everything. They've got, their world is bigger, they're thinking about things at the office, their job, and so at home, their constant remark is, oh, do whatever you want to do. You take care of the kids. You decide. He likes to go to the mountains on his vacation, she likes to go to the sea, so every year they compromise and go to the sea. And what he's doing is peace at any price. And eventually this leads to a whole lot of repressed feelings. A whole lot of insecurities for his wife. And lack of any kind of real depth to their communication process. Because she knows he's not He's not telling her how he's really feeling about them. He's just giving in. Well, let's um, get back to Elmer and Sue here. So, Elmer and Sue, later Elmer says to Sue, you know, I really am feeling like a failure in my work and as a husband and father. I'm feeling ineffective in my life right now. And Sue re- responds, oh, well, you shouldn't feel that way. It's stupid for you to feel that way. I don't know how many times I've caught myself on this one. Saying to someone, oh, don't feel that way. Or you shouldn't feel that way. Well, bless my heart, they do feel that way. And um, what we're doing is not accepting their feelings. We're simply not accept, we're not accepting how they do feel and recognizing it as such, and therefore, um, they feel like we're not accepting them. Now again, Dr. Mallory says, there's only one thing wrong with this response of, oh, don't feel that way. 
the person does feel that way. This disallowance of feeling, just because you don't happen to agree, is a very common block in communication. When you shoot back, it's dumb to feel that way, or how can you feel that way? You are hitting at the very core of that person. It represents a denunciation or belittlement. Rightly or wrongly, the person has those feelings. They are part of him. Disallowing feelings is a deep rejection of the person himself. Instead, we should try to understand that person's feelings. This encourages communication and assists us to be helpful. Now, of course, one of the reasons that we don't share these feelings is because we're so afraid. We're afraid that we're going to be hurt or judged or rejected. And this kind of thing reinforces all of those feelings. Now, of course, Dr. Mallory goes on to say that there are times when temporary withdrawal is the wisest action to take. Proverbs has much to say about this. When we come across a conflict and one or the other of us really gets heated, that's the time to back off. Proverbs calls it a man that has a cool spirit is wise. You know, you keep cool. But in an emotional situation, that's pretty impossible, isn't it? So what you need to do when you really get angry is back off. But don't back off for very long. Let's ask the Lord to really help you control your feelings and keep cool about it and then come back to it and discuss it fully and freely, always. And he says, of course, there are times when temporary withdrawal is the wisest action to take. Sometimes in the heat of the moment, speaking off the top of our heads, we say very hurtful, destructive things. The problem with temporary withdrawal is that it sometimes becomes like temporary taxes, which persist indefinitely. Continual withdrawal is death to communication, and non-communication is death to a good relationship. Now, there are three blocks in communication. These blocks in communication would not have occurred if Sue and Elmer had determined three things. First of all, to make communication a priority. Jack will be talking in a minute about that. And then if we'll just declare a war against defensiveness. Ask God to help us not come back at the other person when they're trying to express a feeling. And then to make a stand for open and free discussion, allowing feelings to be freely expressed. Now, husbands, you're probably more guilty about this uh, withdrawal business than your, the wives are. Marriage counselors say that about 40% of troubled marriages uh, share the factor of the silent husband. We're more prone to talk and to get it off our chest than you are. And yet, Cecil Osborne says, in uh, The Art of Understanding Your Mate, which is an excellent book out there, for you to read together out loud, by the way. We suggest that you take some of these books and read them together out loud and discuss them as you go along. How can you feel that way? You are hitting at the very core of that person. It represents a denunciation or belittlement. Rightly or wrongly, the person has those feelings. They are part of him. Disallowing feelings is a deep rejection of the person himself. Instead, we should try to understand that person's feelings. This encourages communication and assists us to be helpful. Now, of course, one of the reasons that we don't share these feelings is because we're so afraid. We're afraid that we're going to be hurt or judged or rejected. And this kind of thing reinforces all of those feelings. Now, of course, 
Dr. Mallory goes on to say that there are times when temporary withdrawal is the wisest action to take. Proverbs has much to say about this. When we come across a conflict and one or the other of us really gets heated, that's the time to back off. Proverbs calls it a man that has a cool spirit is wise. You know, you keep cool. But in an emotional situation, that's pretty impossible, isn't it? So what you need to do when you really get angry is back off. But don't back off for very long. Let's ask the Lord to really help you control your feelings and keep cool about it and then come back to it and discuss it fully and freely. Always. And he says, of course, there are times when temporary withdrawal is the wisest action to take. Sometimes in the heat of the moment, speaking off the top of our heads, we say very hurtful, destructive things. The problem with temporary withdrawal is that it sometimes becomes like temporary taxes, which persist indefinitely. Continual withdrawal is death to communication, and non-communication is death to a good relationship. Now, there are three blocks in communication. These blocks in communication would not have occurred if Sue and Elmer had determined three things. First of all, to make communication a priority. Jack will be talking in a minute about that. And then, if we'll just declare a war against defensiveness. Ask God to help us not come back at the other person when they're trying to express a feeling. And then to make a stand for open and free discussion, allowing feelings to be freely expressed. Now, husbands, you're probably more guilty about this uh, withdrawal business than your, the wives are. Marriage counselors say that about 40% of troubled marriages uh, share the factor of the silent husband. We're more prone to talk and to get it off our chest than you are. And yet Cecil Osborne says in uh, The Art of Understanding Your Mate, which is an excellent book out there, for you to read together out loud, by the way. We'd suggest that you take some of these books and read them together out loud and discuss them as you go along. A woman's need for a close relationship is so great that if she cannot achieve it in one way, she will instinctively try another. If her efforts at communication are balked by the husband's silence, she has all sorts of alternatives at her disposal. She may become angry over a trifle, or accusatory, or depressed. In an almost frantic attempt to force some kind of communication, she will push any button on his control panel. If he finally erupts with anger, she will feel that at least she has gotten some response. And I'll let you in on a secret, gentlemen. When your wife picks a fight, lots of times that is the reason. She just feels like you haven't been responding, and she's wondering if she can't get some kind of response. It's one way of saying, do you really still care? And if I can't get some response out of you, then I'm thinking you don't really care. And if I can't get the right kind of response, I'll get a wrong kind, but I will get a response. Do you wives agree? <laughs> Maybe that's just me, but I do that. At a totally unconscious level, the wife is saying, I'd like first-class love. If I cannot have that, I'll settle for attention. If I fail to get your attention, I'll get your sympathy. If that fails, I'll get you where it hurts. I'll have an accident or a symptom. And, of course, one thing that we do to get attention is nag. We are first-class naggers, a lot of us. And um, it's one reason why we remind you 20 times, because uh, you haven't responded the first time. story is told of a soldier that had such a nagging wife that he was asked to be transferred to the front in order to get away from her. And uh, yet he had such nagging letters from her that finally he wrote, he said, can't you let me write, uh, can't you let me fight this war in peace? <laughs> now finally, we can use silence as a tool 
to frustrate. Now, as I said, I'm especially good at this one. But friends, I'm asking the Lord to help me, to really help me in this. Because I know it's a cruel, childish response. I need God's love and I need God's maturity to help me to be a mature enough person so that I can get it out and not use silence as a tool to frustrate. Phyllis McGinley writes, Sticks and stones are hard on bones, aimed with angry art. Words can sting like anything, but silence breaks the heart. And instead of this, we have got to learn to communicate when we're hurt, when we're frustrated, when we're angry. A couple came to our home and stayed with us a few days. And had an, we had a chance to observe them and they us. And one morning as his wife and I were finishing up breakfast, Jack came in and he said, Where are, your, where are my keys? And I said, they're in the drawer. And he said, no, they're your keys. And I said, no, they're your keys. And he said, no, they're your keys. And we went back and forth. I just had them made so I knew they were his keys. And so finally he was convinced that they were his keys. And he said, thank you, and walked out. End of incident, I thought. Then this wife turned to me and she said, Carol, I wish you'd pray for me. And I said, well, I'd be happy to pray for you, but how do you want me to pray? And she said, well, whenever my husband asks me a question the way Jack just asked you, he sounds angry. And I said, oh. Uh, I said, well, does he just sound angry or is he angry? You know what her response was? She said, I don't know. Friends, this had been going on for literally years. And she had never asked him the simple question, are you angry? Now, we're inclined to do this. I'm not blaming this wife. Because we do, especially we subjective people, we read into things. And we think, we assume what the other person is thinking. And then we can get hurt or mad or frustrated. And we never say, hey, what's the matter? Are you angry? All she would have had to do, that, that one question, are you angry? He could have said yes or no. Either way, he would have known that uh, the way he was sounding was coming through as angry to her. And maybe if he wasn't angry, he needed to pray about his tone of voice, huh? And maybe they needed to talk about that. If he'd said yes, her next question, being the kind of person she was, would have been, well, are you angry at me? And he could have said yes or no. Maybe he just kicked over the trash can. Who knows? But you see, they would have gotten it out and talked about it. Now, I am inclined to make up statistics, but um, I would say that probably 80% of our problems are right here in this, in this category. I mean, of our conflicts. And conflict is a growing experience. We'll all have conflicts. But a lot of them are just seeming conflicts because we haven't found out what the other person is really saying. Now, I don't know how many times when Jack and I really have studied on this, now we'll say, well, now, what are you really saying? What are you meaning? Is this what you're saying? How are you feeling? And, oh, it's been so great to be able to bring that out in the open. There are five levels of communication. And this is what we want to work for.
Level five is cliche communication. Hi, how are you? Fine. How's your family? No personal sharing. Level four is reporting the facts about others. But we offer no personal commentary on it. The football game, the scores, so on. It can be purely intellectual conversation. Level three begins real communication. My ideas and judgments, my thoughts individually. Here the person is willing to step out of his solitary confinement and risk a little bit. Risk telling some of his ideas and decisions. But he's still very cautious. And if he senses that what he's saying is not being accepted, he'll retreat. You see, if I tell you about an idea that I might have, and you come back with, oh, no, that's crazy, that's the last time I'll do it with you. I've risked something, and you've rejected me. So I will risk no further. And some of you in your relationships are right there. You've risked, and you've been hurt, and so you've withdrawn. And what you need to do is talk about it, pray about it together, and then, regardless of the risks, determine before God that you're going to take those risks to continue trying to deepen areas of communication. Level two begins my feelings and my emotions, how I'm really feeling about something. And level one is where we'll never reach, apart from heaven, totally. But it's total empathy with one another. I know how you're feeling, and you're free to share at all times exactly where you are. Now let me illustrate. A wife, a husband comes home from work, and a wife says, Hi, how was your day? And the husband says, Okay. Level five, cliche communication. And sometimes the wife quits right there. Sometimes the husband wants her to. So she tries again. She says, How did the meeting go this afternoon? And he answers, Oh, fair. Just a fact. Poor question, however. Jack and I read a very interesting article years ago in the Reader's Digest on how to ask good questions. And one of the points was you should never ask a question that can be answered by one word. So it's kind of a joke around our family. We will say, now, what was the most interesting thing that happened to you today? <laughs> or what was the most frustrating thing or something? But they've got to tell, say something more than fine. How to ask good questions. Do you know how to ask good questions? Another kind of poor question that you may want to give a little thought to is using a why question. Why questions many, many times are threatening questions and should be thought about before you ask them. For instance, why did you turn there? Why are we going this way? Why did you do that? See what I mean? All right, so the wife tries again. And she says, well, how did you feel the meeting went this afternoon? She tries to go down to level two, his feelings about it. He answers with an idea or judgment. And he says, well, in my opinion, the committee came up with the wrong answer. So she tries again. She says, was this frustrating to you? A feeling. And he may come back with, yes, I really felt badly that they hadn't done a better job of thinking through. Now you're beginning to get deep to your feelings to really talk about it. Communication is the meeting of meaning. When your meaning meets my meaning across the bridge of words, tones, acts, 
and deeds. When understanding occurs, then we know that we have communication. Love is the opening of one's life to another in intimate, understanding, communication. When two persons can share from the very center of their existence, they experience love in its truest quality. Marriage, friends, is a venture into intimacy. And intimacy is the opening of oneself to another. Now this is all summed up in the verse of scripture in Ephesians 4.15, where it talks about that we are not to be like immature children, but rather we are to speak the truth in love and to grow up into Christ. If everything that we talked could be this, speak the truth in love, we would have that beautiful balance between total and complete intimacy and honesty and yet real love in hearing the real question. Now the reason I say that is sometimes we get confused between the difference between honesty and transparency. And there is a difference. We hear a lot these days about the fact that we our, ga- our goal is to be completely transparent, to say to everything that pops into our heads. Well, see, that's not right, because lots of times that's not loving. If I tell you that I don't like your big nose, and you can't do anything about it. That might be the truth, but that's certainly not loving, is it? In a little book called Habitations of Dragons, Keith Miller has this to say on a chapter called To Tell the Truth. It says, several years ago when I was a new Christian, I decided I would try to be absolutely honest with my wife. We had just moved to a new town and had a good many extra expenses. This transition was making us a little nervous and frantic around the house. In the midst of everything, Mary Ellen went out and bought a new dress on sale, which she could not return. Buying something new sometimes has a soothing effect on her nerves, and understanding this, I was not too surprised or upset. But when she tried the dress on and asked me how I liked it, I told her I had seen a girl on First Street wearing one just like it the same day. First Street is a very unsavory part of the city. I said the dress was okay, but seeing a cheap-looking girl in one just like it spoiled it for me, which was all true. She just glared at me and never wore the dress. I was furious. We could not afford it anyway, but to buy the dress and not wear it was really terrible. But I learned something that day. Christian honesty does not mean that I am obligated to express every thought that passes through my mind. I must learn to hear the real question someone is asking and answer that question, not just the one phrase by the outward words. This was the amazing genius of Jesus' conversation with people. He always saw through their superficial conversations to the real questions they were asking and dealt with them. Mary Ellen had been wanting to know at a deep level, am I attractive to you? Is it all right that I impulsively bought this dress just because I feel frantic and dowdy right now? Do you love me? These were the real woman questions, and the true answer to all of them was yes. But because of my insensitivity, I had answered the superficial question correctly with legalistic honesty. But by so doing, I had said no to her real question. Now, friends... The adventure of marriage is exciting. You'll never totally get to know that person that you're living with. But what a challenge to try. But remember this. In a little book called Why I Am Afraid to Tell You Who I Am, John Powell says this. My person is not a little hard core inside of me, a little fully formed statue that is real and authentic, permanent and fixed. Person rather implies a dynamic process. In other words, 
If you knew me yesterday, please do not think that it is the same person that you are meeting today. I have experienced more of life. I have encountered new depths in those I love. I have suffered and prayed, and I am different. Approach me, then, with a sense of wonder. Study my face and hands and voice for the signs of change, for it is certain that I have changed.